Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is January 16th, 2014, and my guest is Eric Brynjolfsson. He is the Schussel Family Professor of Management Science, Professor of Information Technology, and the Director of the MIT Center for Digital Business at the MIT Sloan School of Management. With Andrew McAfee, he is the author of The Second Machine Age, Work, Progress, and Prosperity in a Time of Brilliant Technologies. Eric, welcome to EconTalk. Thanks, Russ. It's great to have a chance to talk to you. Now, you argue that technology has really taken off in the last few years. Uh, what are some examples that you think are uh, either have happened already that are significant or are about to happen, and why are they important? Yeah, it, it, frankly, it's caught me off guard at times because just a few years ago, I was teaching my students about things that machines could do well and things that, that they couldn't do well. And the, one of my favorite examples was driving a car through traffic. And I said, that's there's no like program or algorithm for that. That's something with too much sensory perception and uncertainty. Um, and then lo and behold, uh, uh, about a year ago, I was riding down Route 101 in a driverless car. So I was uh, I was proven wrong, and I try to be a little bit of an optimist about technology. But it's not just Google's car. It's also uh, IBM's Watson that plays Jeopardy and beats humans. And if, if you know anything about the game Jeopardy, there's all sorts of unstructured questions and puns. There's geography, there's math, there's poetry, there's popular culture. Uh, it's quite a smorgasbord of information. Um, for the first time in history, we can talk to our machines, you know, our phones, and they understand what we're saying and they'll carry out our instructions. I mean, that's that's quite a milestone. Um, amazing things happening with big data. And, and many of these uh, breakthroughs really just were in the past five or, or 10 years or so. Are they going to make a difference? I mean, it's I, I have Siri on my phone. I find myself mm-hmm. using it from time to time as a novelty item, but it's not it's not mm-hmm. part of my life. Um, and we don't have a relationship. Uh, and we just uh, <laughs> the Academy Award nomination just came out, and her is getting a lot of acclaim. Uh, but it, that's right. Right now, it's kind of a novelty item. The driverless car is really cool. Uh, is the driverless car to take one example? Is it going to happen, or is it just going to be an experiment? Uh, after writing it, I'm pretty convinced that it's more than just an experiment. And, and I gave you examples that are deliberately sort of on the on the leading edge, but all of them, I think, are going to become more and more mainstream. You know, to take the case of the driverless car, I don't think we're going to be seeing in the next decade cars driving through Boston traffic. Uh, people can barely do that. Um, but I do think we'll see cars driving down the highway in California. Um, you know, when I was riding down there, I felt, frankly uh, – Safer than I did with a human driver. I kind of, I could, I could tell you, I went through sort of three, three phases. When I first sat in the car, I was a little scared, you know, because the the car in front of us on the highway just came to a dead stop, and I was hoping that the Google driverless car would would recognize that and uh, and and stop. And indeed, it came to this nice smooth smooth slowdown and stop, and then uh, it accelerated again as the other car picked up. And then, like the second phase I went through, I was just kind of exhilarated. And Andrew McAfee and I, and the co-author of the book, we were literally waving at other cars as we drove by and uh, just very excited. But then I got to this third phase. Within about 10, 15 minutes, 
where I was actually kind of uh, kind of bored because you know we drove all the way from uh, Mountain View up to San Francisco and back again, and the car you know it kind of drives like your grandmother might you know very slowly. It always drives 55, of course. It doesn't break the law, and it's very smooth. And uh, you know after a while you sort of like okay. Um, I get it. It's kind of like watching a, a dishwasher or something work, and it's just not that exciting anymore. And and so I'm I can easily see that technology becoming widely used for sort of like super um, cruise control, um, or maybe um, you'd pull it up to a parking lot and you would you know you'd drive through the the city, but when you got there, you would get out and say, okay, car, go park yourself. And a few specific applications like that I think will become uh, common within a decade. Well, I'm sorry you were bored on the ride. You could have been listening to Econ Talk uh, or other forms. <laughs> That's right. Of in fact, for that matter, I could have been re- I yeah. could have been reading. <laughs> could have actually uh, you know, been reading. Uh, uh, yeah. And I, and I had the good fortune of driving in Boston uh, over the winter break. It's a very unpleasant experience. Uh, why do you say that that is unlikely to happen? Because I would think that's the most important economically and just life changing way that that a driverless car would work. You know, the the idea of of taxis, you, the, you could use a service like Uber mm-hmm. to summon a driverless car to take you to the airport or to take you across town. Would be um, that'd be quite a that'd be extraordinary. Uh, you don't think that's coming? Well, it'll, it's going to depend on the conditions, and this is where I, I uh, rely on my smarter and, and more knowledgeable colleagues at the MIT Computer Science and AI Lab and, and elsewhere, who are actually building driverless cars and autonomous robots and. And one of the, the joys of my job is I spend time interacting with them, visiting their labs and, and asking them, um, you know, what's doable, what's not. Is there is there smoke and mirrors or is what I, I wrote in for real? And they tell me that, um, you know, things like the highway driving, certainly very doable uh, driving in, in sort of wide, easy, low traffic conditions, very doable. But as it starts getting more and more complicated, um, driving through Manhattan or Boston uh, during busy times, you have to use still a great deal of judgment. I think actually my impression from driving in Boston is that if you really did follow all the laws and rules, you wouldn't move because because there's just too many exceptions. You wouldn't be able to, you wouldn't be able to get out into traffic uh, without kind of bending the rules a little bit, and it would be uh, hard to uh, with current technology or even the, the next decades technology to make those levels of judgments. I, I suspect that will come as well, but um, with the driverless car, like so many of these other things, it's not all or nothing, and sometimes the first ninety or ninety nine percent of the problem. Is, is very doable, but that last 1% um, will take longer. Yeah, a friend of mine once tried to get to the Museum of Science in Boston, which is particularly difficult. Uh, there's a lot of one-way streets and strange non-rectangular grid there. And he finally gave up, and he, yep. he asked a policeman how to get there, and the policeman gave him the directions, take that second left, da-da-da. And my friend said, isn't that second left going the wrong way down a one-way street? And the policeman said, take a chance. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that's not going to be okay. a driverless car strategy, as you point out. But the thing I do wonder about is what the world would be like for a driverless car in a world of other driverless cars. Because the driverless yes. car today is designed to drive with other drivers. Yes. Um, if they were all driverless or most were driverless, um, there might be some really even better things possible, like moving at high speeds in tandem, et cetera. Anybody working on that? 
Oh, absolutely. No, you're exactly on target. That be- makes actually becomes much easier when you allow other driverless cars to, to um, you know, be the ones that you have to interact with. Um, Sebastian Thrun, who, you know, as you may know, headed the Google driverless car project, was telling me, um, you know, his idea was instead of this uh, high-speed rail that they're thinking of putting between San Francisco and Los Angeles, for a, a fraction of the cost, you know, a few billion dollars, you could dedicate a lane on the highway for driverless cars, and uh, it would be so easy for him to uh, to provide the technology that you could do that. Now, it wouldn't have exactly all the efficiencies in some ways, but it, on the balance, it would be far more cost effective. And as you suggested, you could have the uh, the cars basically train themselves, become trains. You know, they link up; they could drive within a few uh, inches or feet of each other. Most of the most of the pavement on a on a congested highway right now. Um, when you think of it, the highway is being totally full. Actually, about 90% of the pavement is unused because the lanes are twice as wide as a car, and there's typically about five, four or five lengths between cars, even in, in heavy traffic. So you could you can get an enormous increase in capacity if you allowed the cars um, to know about each other and 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 um, assume that the other cars were also driverless, at least on on some of the lanes. Yeah, it's a good argument for selling the highways because. A private entrepreneur would love to implement that. The government, less so. We'll see. Could happen. It's a great, it's a fabulous idea. Uh, now, you started off by saying that you used to tell your students there's some things people are good at and some things are machines are good at. You, we do see this mm-hmm. creeping uh, capability of machines, which sounds somewhat ominous, mm-hmm. not necessarily, but it, it could be. Well, it, it should it should be good news if we do it right, but but it's certainly the way we have things set up now, it can also be bad news for a lot of people. So where do you think that line might stop? Um where do you think uh, – what's going to be left for us? Tyler Cowen, recently a guest on the program, suggested mm-hmm. we'd be coaching would be one of the things we could do because machines wouldn't do yeah. that very well. And yeah. uh, we'd be working with machines, uh, maybe uh, helping them. But uh, that's a pretty narrow slice, and he's somewhat pessimistic mm-hmm. about the future. Uh, what do you think will be mm-hmm. left for us as AI, artificial intelligence advances? Well, first off, as your last sentence suggested, it's a constantly advancing line. So, you know, uh, three years from now, five years from now, 15 years from now, the line is constantly moving and often faster than I expect, sometimes slower. Um, so in, in the shorter time frame, um, there's still plenty of things that people can do. Um, the ones that Tyler mentioned actually are a good place to start um, motivating other people and interacting with us. You know, we've been hardwired over uh, hundreds of thousands of years of evolution to know how to interact with other people. And there are a lot of subtleties we can pick up on that uh, have been very hard for machines to be programmed to, to pick up on. So we're still, we're still pretty good at that. Um, and for that matter, fine motor control is another thing that we have a big evolutionary advantage. You know, picking up a, a penny or a dime is something that, you know, most three-year-olds can do, but uh, robots have an incredibly hard time doing that and uh, fine motor control to, to do those kinds of tasks or even the gross motor control to walk around a room. If you've seen some of the the Atlas robots, we can talk about that later, that are in the latest DARPA Grand Challenge, they walk very, very slowly and clumsily compared to a, a person. So there's a set of jobs from you know gardener to barber to to janitor that are actually relatively immune in, in the in the short term. Um, there are also um, emotional connections, and there are um, a lot of creative tasks as well. So at the uh, often higher end in terms of the, the higher paid jobs, whether it's 
um, creative writing or software or art um, or perhaps parts of uh, economics, I suppose, um, that involve uh, a lot of uh, intellectual feats that we still haven't figured out how to uh, embed in the machine. So those are, those are some of the categories that, that right now uh, I think there's still growth and there will be for some time. So one of the obvious categories you mentioned is software or programming the machines, developing new machines. Um, yes. But how does that – give me a – let's look way down the road, not too far, yep. not not a 1,000 years, but but maybe 30. Right. Let's go 30, 40 mm -hmm. years. We've made some pretty serious uh, transitions. What do you imagine life is like for the bulk of, say, the American society? In other words – is it going to be a world where there's a handful of people, again, as Tyler Cowen has suggested, who make very, very large amounts of money designing mm -hmm. and, and, and being the creative force behind this world that we're talking about, mm -hmm. and the rest of us are cutting each other's hair? That that sounds pretty <laughs> pretty depressing. I, nothing wrong with being a barber, yeah. but most of us yeah. don't aspire to it. We, we have other loves mm -hmm. and, and, and interests. So what what's out there? What do you think it will be like? Um, actually, I think that's a very plausible scenario. We, we talked about, Andy and I talked about that a little bit in our last book, uh, Race Against the Machine, and, and we talked about how people should try to race with the machine. You know, people like data scientists get paid a lot in part because they are complementary to cheap computation and cheap data, and that makes uh, their skills very valuable. Um, soft People who write great software um, are very complementary with machines, and they can see their talents uh, leveraged uh, a thousandfold or a millionfold, and that can make them very, very wealthy. Um, and that's, uh, that's great as well. But, um, in a superstar economy, um, you often get these, these winner take all markets. Uh, there's only, you know, you don't necessarily want, uh, every Tom, Dick and Joe's, uh, you know, software, uh, for tax preparation. There's one or a few that tend to dominate the market, um, in, in most categories. And that means that it's, uh, it is hard for everybody to be the world's best in, in some category or at least in any meaningfully large category. I think there will be um, growing inequality unless we um, take some actions and that may, maybe um, there will be more difficulty for people with uh, uh, average skills to find jobs. As we said in the, in the last book, and we also have a chapter devoted to it in this book, um, there's uh, – there's really probably no better time to be a talented entrepreneur, um, but there's also no worse time to be a person with no uh, special skills or aptitudes. So let me let me try to create a positive vision for that depressing part. Um, yep. <clears throat> let's say that I'm one of the 90% or 95% who can't program those machines, can't come up with the newest robot, can't make the robot better at picking up nickels. Um mm -hmm pennies and dimes. So I'm a gardener or I'm a a trash collector. We're doing a, there's a whole range of of things that may be either humans can do them better or they're just they're cheap enough that it's it's worthwhile to do it. If everything is so inexpensive because of this mm -hmm. productivity, maybe yeah. we enter the world that you allude to in the book when and we've talked about this on the program before, Keynes's uh, essay on his, for his grandchildren. We're in a world mm -hmm. where, you know, maybe I work a few hours a week, right. uh, but my command of goods and services for that few hours is enormous. And, right. and those few hours are not important. So instead of spending 25 uh, 
percent of my waking 50 percent of my waking time at work i'm spending a fraction of that and i have a richer life uh right is that a possibility it's definitely a possibility and is one that we should probably try to work towards as you suggest uh in Keynes's uh, prescient essay, Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren, he described exactly that kind of a world. And uh, he was very much on target when he came to sort of extrapolating growth rates. It turns out he was good at doing uh, uh, exponential math. And, yeah. uh, and uh, so he, he got our, uh, our living standards pretty close to where they actually are. In part, we were fortunate that we have continued to have that kind of exponential growth since uh, the 1930. Um, but where he was really quite wrong was how we uh, spent our time. Um, I think in his era, he imagined anybody as wealthy as, as, as you and I are today, um, we would just want to spend all our time as the English lords did, you know, maybe uh, sipping tea and uh, occasionally listening to poetry and, and, and hunting foxes, I guess. Um, but people continue to work quite a bit. I think that's in part because uh, we've invented and discovered so many new goods and services, yeah. so many more interesting things to do than, than sip tea in a kind of chilly uh, castle. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, we are motivated to do other things. Also, I suspect it's, uh, you know, there's a sociological component. I'm not a sociologist, but people seem to like working, like doing productive things. Um, I was recently uh, talking to, to Bob Putnam. He's a, a researcher at, at Harvard sure. who, who described – how uh, how devastating it can be to communities when uh, work disappears, when they lose their jobs. And it's not just a matter of income. It's a matter of uh, a family structure, of crime, teen pregnancy, drugs, all, a whole set of uh, ills that come along with that. Um, to, to hone in more specifically on your question, I'm hopeful that we can have that kind of an abundance economy. And, and we do talk about in one of the chapters about all the free goods and services that are available and the many cheaper goods and services. But it's also possible that the wages for many kinds of workers will fall even faster than the price of goods and services will fall as you get this growing uh, dispersion. And for those people, uh, it may not be such a, a pleasant outcome. Uh, they may not be working not because they're satiated, but because the, uh, the, uh, they're, they're close substitutes for machines, and the machines can do what they do at a lower and lower price. And uh, I think ultimately there's always a price that clears the market, but for some people that price may be uh, 50 cents an hour or less, and, uh, and that's not a very pleasant existence. And, but as you point out in the book, a lot of what we uh, enjoy these days is, is – um, we enjoy without paying for it. Uh, econ talk, I like to think, is one of those things. Um, uh, <laughs> is it free? Good. <laughs> it, it doesn't. We don't charge our listeners. Anybody can listen. Uh, we we support it uh, as an educational cause. Um, so there's a lot of things in life like that. So in this case, yeah. your purchasing power. Well, later we're going to talk about what this does GDP because you talk about it in the book. But yeah. if you just think about this image of oh my goodness, my my wage is falling faster than the prices are falling. When prices hit zero, uh, that's that's a pretty good deal. And so, if I get satisfaction right. from right. browsing Wikipedia and contributing to Wikipedia, say, uh, instead of my job, it might be an okay life. I don't know. I'm trying to be optimistic here because it's kind of scary. Yeah, 
well, well, that you know. So let me let me build on the optimistic part and then give some caveats. So we do have a chapter about the free goods, and we talk quite a bit about Wikipedia. It turns out I've done some research on the value of free goods in the economy, and and the consumer surplus is, is probably on the order of three hundred billion dollars a year from just the internet free goods. Explain and, what and explain increase. what consumer surplus is. Oh, sure. So, well, um, you know, consumer surplus is the difference between what people value a good, what they'd be willing to pay if they absolutely had to, and what they actually do pay. So in the case of, say, Wikipedia, we get that for free, um, whereas Encyclopedia Britannica costs thousands of dollars. Um, by many metrics, Wikipedia is better, more comprehensive, approximately the same error rate. So the people who used to pay for that encyclopedia are now getting something uh, – uh, for free, and, and that that difference is an increase in their consumer surplus. And you can do that for for every good, um, almost, and any good that you buy, almost by definition, you're getting some consumer surplus because uh, since you bought it, you you must value it at more at equal to or more than what you paid for it. The total consumer surplus in the economy is is enormous, and um, it, as you suggested, is quite different than the GDP of the economy. The GDP is what the actual um, market prices of the goods and services multiplied by the, the number of goods and services, the amount of goods and services. So those are two different kinds of numbers. And um, economists tend to focus, I think, much too much on GDP. Uh, those are the numbers that are reported out to whatever, seven, eight, nine significant digits uh, every quarter, and the press uh, trumpets them. But think about it. Um, if, the, if the price of something goes down, like that encyclopedia, that tends to lower the GDP, even though it's not making us worse off, it's making us better off. So we should probably care more about consumer surplus than we do about GDP. It's just a lot harder to measure, and so it tends to get uh, yeah. pushed to the side. Well, that, that's exactly it. It's, it's a classic case of, of you know focusing on the things we can measure, even if they aren't necessarily things that, that matter to us. And, and we need to – I think one of the things we talk about in the book is how we need to reinvent our metrics and our measures – but just to make sure I close the loop on that point about the free goods, you know, so they're tremendously valuable, and we, we calculate that in uh, my research, and we discuss it in the book. But I also want to point out that not, not everything is getting cheaper. Not everything is, is a that's digital right. good that's subject to those kinds of economics. So uh, uh, education, healthcare, housing, these are some pretty big-ticket items that, uh, depending on how you quality adjust them, are still big, big chunks of, of – uh, of our spending and uh, and aren't subject to that same kind of economics of free, at least at least not yet. You say at least not yet. It's, it seems to me that if we um, got out of the way a little bit, uh, we could unleash some of that. I can – the education system being an obvious example of where the potential for giving people very low-cost access compared to what we currently use as the technology of a person standing in front of 25 people in a room, we could, um, we could really make some uh, big changes. We could make a huge difference there. I think that you're right on target with education. Um, you know, if you look at the other industries, media and retailing and manufacturing and finance, they've all been revolutionized by this digital revolution. But my industry and your industry, you know, it's barely been touched. We, we stand in front of a classroom much the way, I don't know, Socrates did thousands of years ago, uh, perhaps even with a similar piece of chalk and slate. Um, and MOOCs and other digital technologies have the potential for, for having two big, big breakthroughs. One you alluded to about 
you know, um, really scaling things. Someone like Sebastian Thrun, who I mentioned earlier, uh, when he taught his artificial intelligence course at, at, um, at Stanford, he moved that onto a, a digital MOOC and reached hundreds of thousands of people. And uh, that was a huge increase in his productivity and a huge increase in quality for a lot of people who were then had the opportunity to learn from him. But the second benefit is, is subtler, but I think it's going to be even more important. And that is when you digitize things, you tend to dramatically improve their measurability. And we, we've just been talking about the difficulties of measuring things. But um, education hasn't been measured very well, not just in terms of the uh, you know, test scores, but in terms of the real micro level, what's working and what's not working. Um, we have a MOOC at MIT that my uh, colleague Anath Agarwal taught on circuits. And he was, very, he was able to measure how people were listening to the lectures and doing the problem sets on a minute-by-minute uh, minute basis and keep track of things. And he was surprised to find, for instance, that most of the students in the class started working on the problem sets way before they listened to his lecture on the particular topic that they were supposed to be working on. Yeah, sometimes there's too and much he, information. <laughs> yeah, there was too much information. And then what they would do is they'd work, and then when they get stuck, then they'd go to the lecture and maybe listen to the part that need, they needed to listen to to help sure. them with that part of it. And uh, he realized that that's the way people, you know, really get motivated is when they have a problem, then they go to seek the knowledge. And it, it, it flipped around some of his assumptions. He, that was just one of the insights he got, but he got many, many insights like that about what learning styles work and don't work, and even how they differ from one kind of student to another kind of student. And that's ultimately not just going to raise the, the level of our educational quality, but I think it'll put it on a, on a different trajectory. It'll, it'll increase the slope so that we can uh, improve it uh, year to year, or even uh, week to week compared to what we do now. Let's talk about the current state of the um, of the economy for the average worker, or average person's mm-hmm. standard of living. Um, you mm-hmm. are worried, as many are. I'm less so. But you are worried, as many are, about two things, stagnation and inequality. They're often conflated, which I think is a terrible intellectual yeah. mistake. But uh, you suggest, as do many, that um, – the standard of living for most people hasn't budged much for the last 20, 30 years, potentially. Mm-hmm. And uh, because at the top, it's getting larger, The uh, and they're capturing allegedly the mm-hmm. gains. Inequality is also getting worse. So make, make the case for that and then uh, sure. suggest how it what it might tell us about what we have going forward. Sure. I mean, in many ways, this was – part of the catalyst for Andy and, I, Andy and I to write this book. You know, uh, Tyler Cowen, is he a colleague of yours? He's a, um, he used to but, be. I used to be at George Mason. Now I'm, I'm at used Hoover. used to be a colleague of yours. Yeah. yeah. He wrote a, a very uh, uh, inspiring book called The Great Stagnation, um, pointing out this uh, issue about stagnating median uh, income. And uh, it's not just him, but there are many economists, such as at the American Economic Association meetings in Philadelphia, and had what amounted to sort of a debate with Bob Gordon of Northwestern University, who, who wrote uh, an article Also a stagnationist, called, uh, yeah. Yes, also a stagnationist. His article was, I think, uh, Is Growth Dead or the End of Innovation, something like that. Um, and, uh, and Dale Jorgensen of Harvard, who had some pessimistic views. Um, and uh, I was sort of the lone optimist on it. But, but there are a lot of economists. I guess there's a, there's a reason they call economics the dismal science who have a pretty dim view about what's been happening recently to median income. Um, obviously, employment has, uh, has suffered a great deal over the past decade. Um, it doesn't seem to be improving if you look at, say, the employment-to-population ratio. As you may know, the recent increases 
improvements in the uh, unemployment rate mostly reflect people dropping out of the labor force, not so much new people getting right. jobs. So those are some dismal and discouraging statistics. But at the same time, Andy and I were confused because we spent a lot of time with uh, these technologists at the MIT Media Lab and, and CSAIL, the Computer Science and AI Lab, and Silicon Valley. And they're just, you never meet such optimistic people as these guys. There's no problem they don't think they can solve. And they tell us that innovation has never been faster and technology will solve all our problems, um, even going as far as the singularity and all. So these two different views, um, these groups really didn't talk to each other, and uh, we wanted to try to reconcile them. And the, the way we reconcile them, and we talk about in the book, is that, yes, technology is advancing incredibly fast. We are in a very innovative period, but there's no economic law that says that everybody's going to benefit evenly from improvements in technology, or even that everyone's going to benefit at all. Um, it's possible for some people even a majority of people to be made worse off, not just in relative terms, but in absolute terms. Now, that's not something that's happened in the past uh, or in, in, for, for 200 years that didn't happen. But in the past um, decade or two, I think there's growing evidence that that has been happening. We have been seeing the pie growing quite large. Uh, we're at record Wealth, $77 trillion is the new record we hit last week. Uh, record productivity, record GDP, record profits. Um, and it's, I think, growing very fast, not all of it measured. But the official data suggests that median income is pretty stagnant. In fact, probably lower than it was in the 1990s. And median is not the same as average, of course. Median is the 50th percentile and those below. So that that is a um, an, uh, some statistics that uh, that illustrate how technology can be uh, growing the pie, but not necessarily um, helping out everybody. Yeah, I don't believe the statistics, <clears throat> at least not totally. Okay. I'm, I'm willing to accept the possibility they're right, but when people talk about them, they never accept mm -hmm. the possibility that they could be wrong. Um, mm -hmm. Those statistics. So, for, just to take an example, and it's one that you really sure. cover in the book in 19. 79 or 1989, people use different uh, dates because they cherry-pick different measures of government government measures of income. Mm -hmm. But typically, mm -hmm. they're looking at, say, household income. They ignore the fact that household structure has changed dramatically since 1979, say. So, there's been an enormous right. increase in the divorce rate, uh, enormous delay in marriage. A lot more people are single. Households then have fewer workers. Uh, and as a result… When you compare median in 79 to, to 2009, say, it's not really – it's nothing close to an apples to apples comparison. Uh, and so, mm -hmm. as you point out, is there anybody in 2009 who would like to be back at their 1979 income and take their – take their – excuse me, have their 1979 income and prices compared to today's income and prices? Uh, their standard of living is higher of, of, of enormous portion of the, of, the, of the folks. You can debate. Right. Uh, how well, people feel about inequality, but but it's obvious, yeah. as you point out, that yeah. quality is poorly measured in the in the price data, yeah. and this right. household demographic effect distorts the measurement. 
I think you're asking exactly the right questions and going after some of the, the serious flaws with, with those metrics. On the household measure, um, that is a, a, a flaw, and that's why it's important to correct for household size or, or it can be useful to correct for household size. That probably uh, eliminates about 20 to 30% of the discrepancy if you do that. And there are other things you can do in terms of adjusting for benefits, uh, the quality of health care, um, and potential biases in the uh, consumer price index, which I personally believe is, is, is biased and, and our standard of living is growing faster than it says, although people like Bob Gordon will, will argue the other side of that. They'll, he'll point to things Fair that enough. people used to get on the other side that we don't get today. Um, you know, and, and you could debate because it, it is a little hard. You'd like to do an apples to apples comparison, but it's almost uh, uh, physio- physically impossible or philosophically impossible is a, is a better word, metaphysically impossible to, to do that comparison because they're just, it's a, they're, you know, they're different people, different goods, different services. So, you know, can you say whether having your gas station, you know, uh, attendant wipe your windshield is more valuable than having access to Siri on your iPhone? I don't know. There's just some weird comparisons that you, you probably can never really do. Yeah. But, 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 but what I think, um, what I think, uh, there's little dispute about is that um, the, as measured, the gap between the top 1% and the 50th percent or, or whichever percentiles you want to focus on has grown and that if, if the median income hasn't fallen, it hasn't grown a whole lot. Um, it, it may be flat. Um, so I think, you know, depending on, on which tweaks you want to make, you may move it around by a few percent one way or the other. I mean, for instance, I tried to correct it for the free goods on the internet and, uh, you know, there's tens of billions of dollars of additional value every year, but when you add them in, it's not enough to come close to, uh, to bringing the, the rate of growth of median income up to what it was, uh, in the, uh, in the earlier eras. So, I mean, I, I think there are some people like you who, um, are skeptical of the, of the numbers. And I think that there's justified skepticism. I, my sense is that the majority of economists would would agree that median income, however you measure it, probably hasn't grown much since the uh, 1990s. There's no theoretical reason that it had to. Um, so I, I'm I'm I tend to be with the majority on that, but but I think it's something that requires further uh, continuing further study. Well, let me ask a different piece of this puzzle. Yep. You have a great chart mm-hmm. in the book where you show that in 1972. Uh, median mm-hmm. and average income start to diverge. Before that, they're very, very similar. And then all of a sudden, yes. they diverge dramatically. The average keeps growing, and the median right. starts to just totally slump. Um, right. Do you find it plausible that something happened in 1972 that caused this incredible discontinuity in the data? It's rather shocking, really, right? There is one explanation, which is the, the standard explanation is, well – the average person, that includes the high outliers at the, you know, it's as you point out in the book, it's not a, a mm-hmm. normal distribution income. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the high outliers mm-hmm. pull up the average, but the median person just kind of chugs along. And in fact, 72 is this big discontinuity. What do you, you can't really, yeah, well, it's hard to explain. Um, <laughs> I'm not I, saying I, I have the explanation, by the way. Okay, go ahead. I, I don't think, I don't think it's that hard to explain. I mean, I, you know, first off, uh, uh, it's not like there was a, a one-time shock in 72 that didn't continue. What we saw was that they started diverging then, and, and they continued to diverge ever since then. Um, and if you look at a lot of different metrics, we have another chart where we look at you know uh, education and how the 
uh, salaries of people with different levels of education. And for, you know, before about 1970 or so, um, people with um, high school education or college education or postgraduate education all saw their wages grow at about the same rate. And afterwards, they started diverging. Um, and um, by the uh, 80s, the people with high school or less education were, were falling in absolute terms, whether they were uh, male or female. And there are a lot of other ways of slicing the data. And they all tell a kind of a similar story that things are diverging. And, and in the book, you know, we, we have three complementary explanations for what's going on. The first is, is widely studied by economists called skill bias technical change, which is this idea that the technology, you alluded to it earlier, I think, that the technology tends to uh, be complementary or favor people with uh, more education and more skills by various metrics and tend to substitute or lower the demand for people with uh, lesser skills. Um, and uh, that has accelerated and helped drive some of that especially actually in the 80s and 90s. The second um, explanation is capital bias technical change. The change, um, the technology can also help one factor of production versus another, like capital versus labor. And it and the share of income in the U.S. economy that's gone to capital has gone up and the share that's gone to labor, including compensation and including, for that matter, CEOs and, and superstars, but if you add them all together, that share has gone down, um, not because the CEO's salaries have gone down, but because the uh, uh, compensation going to the other 99% of Americans has gone down more rapidly. And the third, uh, the third change is what we call superstar bias technical change, and that is really honing in on that top, not even 1%, but one hundredth of 1%, you know, the superstar baseball player, the uh, the Scott Cook who wrote TurboTax and is a, is a billionaire and the musicians and many others who have come up with uh, who have skills or talents or luck that um, allow them to have a, a product or service that is now scalable to millions of other people. And that's been very, very rewarding to them. And it's created a lot of a tremendous amount of value for the consumers of that product. Um, but it also means that uh, people who have the second best or the 10th best uh, service in that category aren't in as much demand. You put those three things together, skill bias, technical change, capital bias, technical change, and superstar bias, te technical change, and you can have a pretty big divergence in, uh, in uh, the incomes of different kinds of people. Yeah, and I, 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 you know, I certainly agree that all those things are important. Uh, just a side note on the educational Mm -hmm. Fact, and then yep. I want to allow that'll let us segue into some policy issues. Sure. So it's true that if you if you only go to high school, and you don't go to college, or at worst, if you don't finish high school, and uh, that the prospects for those folks, the economic financial prospects for those people, has has really deteriorated, especially relative to people who go to college and or go on to graduate right. school. The problem with that analysis is is that it's not a random sample, and the proportion of people who go to high school who only finish high school or, or more dramatically, the proportion who don't finish high school has mm -hmm. changes over time. And so the people in the college group or the people in the don't finish college group or don't go to college group, it's a very different group of people. We treat those educational categories as if they're all the same. They're not. The human capital level and the un intangible, unmeasured skills of somebody with, say, a 10th grade education today versus a 10th grade education 50 years ago, those are very different people. 
And so I think well, uh, let me make two points on that. Yeah, I mean, first, in concept, I think you're you're exactly right. But that's certainly something that, that that's well understood by Larry Katz and David Otter and the others who do it. And their models include both changes in supply and demand, and they they do their best to account for the changing composition of the people and 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 and, and how the demand affects as well as the supply affects change it. The other, um, so that's sort of a conceptual point. The other perhaps more depressing point is that while you were right that that composition was changing quite a bit um, for most of the 20th century, uh, in the past couple of decades really, um, we've kind of hit a ceiling or we've stopped improving that ratio. The, by some measures, the um, generation graduating today is the first one in American history that's not more educated than their parents are. So it's not like we're continuing to see a, a big change in that. America's greatest idea, we write in the book, was mass education. And that was a response to the first machine age, um, was widespread education of people to win this race against pe- technology, uh, the race between technology and education. But in the past couple of decades, uh, we are not... Uh, winning that race anymore. The United States, whether it's by international measures or measured against ourselves in the past, have not been having anywhere near the uh, uh, investments and benefits in education that we once had. Fair enough. And and to make your point stronger, um, if um, if you increase the proportion of going to college and college is less educational, you've got a separate problem. Same is true with high school. I think the average high school graduate of today is uh, not as not as skilled in the in the the unobservable parts of that person that can't be measured mm-hmm. are different, but so are the inputs that were actually applied and given to them in the educational experience. Um, in some dimensions, yeah. in other dimensions, I don't know. Math's pretty serious still in American high schools, so um, it's hard to dumb down calculus. It can be done, but uh, a lot mm-hmm. of kids still take do serious math. Um, and as you point out, we struggle sometimes internationally, but we do still learn something right. in school. Um, well, well my pet, my, my pet little thing I just want to mention is yeah. that I've, I'm not as much of a fan of calculus as I once was, and I'm <laughs> on a little push in my high school to yeah. uh, replace calculus with statistics uh, in terms of what I think is more practical for most people, with the possible exception of, of PhD economists. Um, the, uh, the I don't know that calculus is widely widely needed, but that's sort of a, a tangent. Well, it's interesting. My wife's a math teacher, and she's teaching mm-hmm. a class of uh, seniors this year a split between calculus. And uh, statistics for for one of the levels of the school and statistics is the only I, I agree with you statistics in many ways is much more useful than for most students than calculus. The problem is yep. to teach it well is extraordinarily difficult. It's very easy to teach a horrible statistics class that where you spit back the definitions of mean and median, yeah. but you become dangerous because you think you know something about data when in fact it's kind of subtle. Yeah, but with all these people, you know, you read newspapers today and you just it's I just grimace because the 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 journalists don't understand basic statistics and I don't think the readers do either and and that's something that appears almost daily in our lives. Uh, I'd love it if, if we uh upped our our education in in that area. And and as data and data science becomes more important, it, it's going to be uh going to be more important to do that. So, let's take the pessimistic view, uh which is that what we're observing now is the beginnings of a of a transformation of the second machine age where technology mm-hmm. increases the size of the pie, but the share going to the bulk of the people isn't very large. 
Uh, what can mm-hmm. we do down the road to make that better? What are some of the policy recommendations that you think are important? Well, fortunately, we've already talked about one of them, you know, the very first one that we focus on, which is education. And I don't mean just investing more in education, although that wouldn't hurt. Um, but I mean, mostly reinventing education and bringing digital technologies to it. Um, let's not dwell on that too much more because we've already spent some time on it. And I know um, you have a limited time for this, this podcast. Um, the second big suggestion and set of suggestions we have is around entrepreneurship. Um, we need to create a more dynamic economy. And in our point about entrepreneurship, which is sometimes misunderstood, is not that we think everyone is going to be or should be an entrepreneur. It's not like that's what you do when you can't find a regular job. Um, we want to push for on, more entrepreneurship and make it easier on, on, in different ways um, because entrepreneurs are the people who are in charge in our economy of inventing new products and services. They're the ones who are inventing new jobs. I mean, it's not an MIT professor who's going to be able to figure out what the hot new products are or a, uh, or a government bureaucrat or even the president. It's something we need to crowdsource. And, you know, the way we crowdsource that is we have a thousand or 10,000 or a million entrepreneurs try different ideas. A lot of them are going to be really dumb and they're going to fail. Some of them are going to be breakthroughs. You know, when the first machine age automated so much of the economy, we used to have 90% of Americans who were in agriculture. Now it's less than 2%. All those people didn't just become unemployed. What happened was that, you know, ingenious people like Henry Ford, and Steve Jobs, and Bill Gates, and others helped invent entirely new industries and new products and services that employed people. And, and yes, there were some preconditions. They had the, 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 an educated population to work with and other things that, could, that they could draw on. But we have not been doing very well in that recently. The, you may be surprised that the, um, that the uh, uh, entrepreneurship and the growth of young new companies is less in the past decade than it was in the 90s or 80s. And uh, when we lose that dynamism, we lose the ability to, to replace the jobs that are being automated away. What do you think stopping that? <clears throat> Why do you think that's changed? Some of it's obviously cyclical related to the, the Great Recession, but – uh, you suggest in the book there's some other factors. Yeah, it, 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 it's, it, even before the Great Recession, it happened. And, you know, I've talked to the people who have studied this most closely at the Kauffman Foundation and people like John Haltewanger, and they're actually quite puzzled about what's going on. There are some, um, you know, regulations often at the state and local level that, that protect incumbents, whether it's uh, the taxi drivers that are trying to keep Uber from, uh, from flourishing in Cambridge and other places, um, or protecting France. whether it's nail salons <laughs> for, you know, for, you know, France. So that's, that's, uh, uh, part of it. Um, there may be, um, that people are more fearful. Um, and if there's not a, a safety net, they're afraid to, to try new things right now. Um, you know, until recently, healthcare was not very portable. And I know people who wanted to start jobs, but they had to stay with a big company because start uh, new business, but they had to stay with a big company because to preserve their health insurance. Um, we put a big tax on labor right now. Um, our, our tax system is very skewed towards, in a, in a sense, punishing people for creating jobs. Um, because, um, that's the way, that's what we tax. And, and, you know, one of the first rules of economics is if you want to discourage something, you know, you, you raise the price or you put a tax on it. And, uh, so those are all possible reasons, but, um, it's something that certainly requires a lot more attention. Yeah. We do have a great culture, which uh, has been a great advantage for America, I think in the past, and that's not going away for a while. So it should continue to help us. 
Well, you know, there's another one. I mean, part of that culture is an immigrant culture. In Silicon Valley, more than half the companies are started by uh, immigrants, and we've become much less welcoming to immigrants than we used to. I mean, just earlier today, I was working on trying to deal with the visa and green card issues of uh, of a, of a recent PhD. Actually, he's holding off getting his PhD because once he gets it, the clock starts uh, ticking and the government kicks him out. I mean, what kind of a policy is that, that uh, when you get your some of your brightest, most educated people in the world come here and then we kick them out? <laughs> um, so we should probably staple a green card to every uh, PhD diploma. Um, and uh, encourage them to stay and, and you know, welcome them not just to Silicon Valley and, and, and Boston, but, but all over the country. So immigration policy and the culture that has that openness is something we can improve as well. Well, there's a lot of fear. Uh, there's a lot of fear about the future, and I think we've touched on it indirectly, it, right? If you think yes. that immigrants come in, let's talk – I mean, I'm, I'm excited for that PhD to come. I'll, I'm also excited for the uneducated person to come from Guatemala, open a mm-hmm. restaurant. Do whatever, right. whatever that person can do. And they right now, people who immigrate to the United States often work very hard and work multiple jobs. But a lot of people worry they're going to drive down the wages. They're like machines, just really cheap machines. Um, I think one of the things we lo- think. Well, let me just pick up on what yeah, you said there. The, the, the fear, I think, you're exactly right, that, that this fear, unfortunately, often pushes us to do counterproductive strategies like discouraging immigration when we should be encouraging it and more generally trying to preserve the the past at the expense of the future when really that's just not going to be possible. We can't stop technology. We shouldn't stop technology. What we need to do is embrace the dynamism that helps us adapt to that. The more we do to try to slow down change, um, I think the more stagnant we become and the worse off we become. The only, the only successful strategy is one that embraces change and, and does what it can to, to channel it in a way that benefits a broad set of people. One of the optimistic ways to look at the future is to say, well, I don't know what jobs are going to replace the ones that are going to be made obsolete by the new technology. But that was true in 1950 yeah. and 1900 and 1850. And they came along, yeah. as you said, bright, creative people found new things for people to do. I think the worry, and you have those of us who are optimistic, and I'm one of those, we have to be honest about it, is that, and you point this out in the book, it's one thing when John Henry gets replaced by a machine. So John Henry right. had muscle. And the machine is better at muscle than the human. Um, right. But when it's brains, it, you start to wonder what is left. Um, I think there will be things. I don't know what they are. So that's not very comforting to most people. They're not willing to, it tires a little bit <laughs> of a leap of faith. You and I are in very much the same space. I mean, you know, part of the analogy is that the first machine age, you know, replaced muscle. And then, then we went on to doing mostly more cognitive tasks. In fact, um, control systems, um, cognitive tasks become more valuable. They're complements to increased power and uh, ability to move the world. There's no point in having a, a, a steam engine or uh, internal combustion engine or any power system if you don't have somebody directing what, what it should do. So that increases the value of human labor. But when you start automating cognitive work, you know, then it, it gets a little harder. It's not so obvious what the human complements are. Maybe they're more substitutes. You know, we talked a little bit about relationships and, and those kinds of uh, skills. And, and maybe there's some areas in, where people, we have an, an EQ, an emotional quotient that's better than the machines. But even that, I, mean, I have friends at the Media Lab, uh, like Cynthia Brazil. I can't remember whether she made it into the book as we talked to about it over the summer. Um, you know, they're working on these emotive compu- um, computers that, 
pick up on subtleties. Um, right now, they're working with autistic kids. They have far more patience than most humans do in working with them. And some of them are listening in on call centers. Um, my friend Sandy Pentland, also at the Media Lab, has one that listens to the, the tone of voice of callers and call centers and uh, and warns when they're about to explode before the perhaps the uh, the person working the call center realizes it. Um, so, you know, it's not clear that we'll always have an advantage in that area either. What about longer run solutions? What do you think is possible? Uh, you talk about some of the ideas in the book. Uh, mm-hmm. Where should we be yeah. thinking in not just the next few years? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the best thing is to, is to get people working. In, in the book, we talk a little bit about the, the basic income that um, and, and negative income tax that Milton Friedman and uh, Richard Nixon um, actually were, were big advocates of, which is a, a surprise to a lot of people, as well as a lot of liberals. Um, but um, we actually aren't as eager to just hand people money because – not because it doesn't you know, solve some of their, their economic needs. It does. But as Voltaire said um, – Work solves addresses three great ills, boredom, vice, and need. And it's not enough to just address the need. You have to address the others. Uh, we mentioned, we talked about Bob Putnam earlier and what happens when work leaves a community. We'd like to do what we can to keep work in the community. And, and so in our long-term recommendations chapter, we talk about a, a growing investment in something like the uh, earned income tax credit, which basically subsidizes work. Instead of the minimum wage where the payment is made essentially by the employer and in, in, in essence penalizes them for hiring somebody, their income tax credit is something that everybody contributes to. And even if the worker doesn't have a marginal product enough to make it worth paying them you know, 10 or $15 an hour, you could still bring their income up to that level and keep them working through an earned income tax credit. Um, and that combined with more education, more entrepreneurship, better matching of people, something we also talk about in there, I think for a good period of time, 10, 20 years or more, can keep uh, a lot of people working, maybe as many as are now, in, in all sorts of uh, productive endeavors. And if you go to the real long, long future, you know, then maybe we get something more like a Star Trek economy where a lot of our basic needs are taken care of, where, uh, in the words of Keynes, we solve our economic problem, um, not in terms of all of our wants and wishes, but in terms of our basic needs like food, clothing, and shelter. Um, and that would be an economy where, where robots and machines take care of a lot of that, that drudgery. Uh, Andrew and I sometimes call that a, a digital Athens. You know, the, uh, the Athenians during their golden era spent a lot of time uh, discussing philosophy and, and go, writing plays and going to plays and poetry. Uh, and they were able to do that because they had slaves. Um, they were human slaves doing all the drudgery work. Maybe at some point, even in our lifetimes, we'll have more and more robot slaves doing that drudgery so that we can we can devote our times to leisure and listening to podcasts like yours. Well, I actually think um, we're, we're a long way toward that. I think uh, one part, another part of my optimism is to suggest that we've mismeasured uh, – the quality of life right now, not just where we're headed, mm-hmm. and yeah. you know, an enormous portion of of people. It's not it's not seventy, but it's not five. Mm-hmm. A large portion of people have an immense amount of leisure on the job. I recently asked people to yeah. contact me if they listen to Econ Talk at work, and I got well over a hundred emails. I forget how many I got and count them. <laughs> but people who confessed, confessed or bragged. Or yes. just let me know that yeah, while I'm doing this sort of mindless stuff, I listen to Econ Talk, and we do so much 
for many, not everybody, but for many, that's many right. people, the those quality are, of life. Amazon? Go ahead. Yeah, that's right. That's right. No, that, those are Amazon's prime shopping hours as yeah. well is during uh, working hours. You know, people are clearly the, the jobs are nothing like the painful drudgery that they had uh, a century ago or even 50 years ago. Um, I think on balance, people's uh, work lives are, are much more flexible, not just in terms of the leisure, but even when they are working, I think the, the, the nature of the work tends to be more interesting in part because the, the deadening routine parts of it are the easiest gone, ones to uh, automate. And although it's awkward to wear a toga at work and be that Athenian in the 21st century, <laughs> when you're working from home, as many people do now, they can wear a towel even. You don't even have to go up to the toga. Okay. I, I, I won't ask you what you're wearing right now, Russ. But I'm fully dressed. <laughs> I'm, I'm working from home, but I'm fully dressed. Uh, last question. Are you optimistic uh, about the human enterprise? Not about technology per se, yeah. not about the American economy in 12 years, but for the human enterprise as this technology world that we live in just does explode, and it's going to. I'm optimistic, but with a huge qualifier. I mean, I started off telling you about these, these two groups that I interact with that don't talk to each other, the, the dismal economists and their pessimism. Um, not all of them, but not you, but, but many of them. Um, and the, the over-exuberant utopian uh, technologists who think that technology would just solve all our problems. And I think they both make the same mistake. They assume that, that technology is destiny and they just plot out, this is what's going to happen. Uh, get used to it. And uh, although I love Tyler's book and I think he's got a lot of insights, that would be one place I quibble is I think he's a little too, um, uh, uh, resigned to a particular future. Uh, Andy and I call ourselves mindful optimists because we think if, if we take action and we adjust our skills, our organizations, even our economic institutions and the way we, we organize work, um, we can adapt to technology and the technology will race ahead and we don't need to try and slow it down. What we need to do is speed up our adaptation to it, just as we did with the first machine age, you know, whether it's with, uh, in that case, it was, it was widespread primary education. It was the invention of new kinds of organizations and, and, and new ways of working. Um, I don't know for sure what all the adaptations are going to be going forward. You know, we have three chapters in the book where we have recommendations, where we lay out some of our ideas, but we also try to be humble and say that people are going to discover other ideas and we, we encourage them to, to email us with their suggestions uh, or post them on our website with our, their suggestions. I, I, my experience has been that generally people can make those kind of adaptations and uh, the, the biggest obstacle to that is, is getting the diagnosis right. And with this book, we're trying to get the diagnosis right about what the issues are. And if we do that, I think we'll be able to get the prescriptions right. Unfortunately, you know, a lot of people in Washington and, and in the public discourse, I don't think really are grappling with this really important issue. I think it's the grand challenge that our society is going to face going forward. But if we do grapple with it, at the end of the day, I'm a mindful optimist. Yeah, Washington seems to be very focused on the next six months, not necessarily the most helpful yeah. um, attitude. That's right. They've got these sort of short-term scandals. But at the end of the day, you know, I don't know much about Washington and politics, but, but one, one, my one friend there told me, you know, Eric, the thing about Washington, it's, uh, they're not leaders, they're followers. And, um, that's kind of what they're designed to be. And if the American people demand, you know, these kinds of changes, then, then they'll follow. They'll want to get out in front of that, that crowd. But it's a mistake to think that they're going to be, uh, uh, leading things the way, say, uh, technologists in Silicon Valley do. My guest today has been Eric Brynjolfsson. 
He is the author with Andrew McAfee of The Second Machine Age. Eric, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Well, it's been a real genuine pleasure. I'm glad we had a chance to talk. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.